Hello, Pastor Life listeners. David Brown here, as always, with my friend and podcast partner, Rhonda Blevins. And we want to tell you about our upcoming season of Pastor Life. You may or may not be aware that my friend David here, among all the many things that he does, he teaches a class at Duke Divinity School in the Doctor of Ministry program, and the class is on strategic thinking. So I started thinking strategically about asking David to share some of his expertise with us here on the pod. So I asked him, he said yes, and so Professor Brown, why don't you tell us about what we can expect in our upcoming season of Pastor Life Podcast. Well, I think we can expect some conversations about what strategy looks like in the church and other ministry settings and what is particular or peculiar about strategy in the Christian context. And we'll dive into some topics like seeing more clearly, uh, methods and models, um, risk and failure and grit, building beloved community. Uh, Hopefully it will be a way for pastors to think strategically and have some tools and resources really to apply directly to what's going on in their context. I can't think of anyone better to offer a series on our podcast than you teaching this content. I really look forward to learning from you um, and I appreciate your willingness to share your expertise with us here on the pod. Absolutely. I'm excited to do it. So what are we going to call this next season of Pastor Life? Well, as much as I wanted to call it Christian Strategery, uh, I think we're going to go with Holy Experiments, Strategy for Joining God's Mission in the World. I like it. All right. Holy Experiments, coming soon from Pastor Life Podcast. Now on with the pod. Welcome back once again to Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm Rhonda Blevins, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida. And I'm David Brown, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of the Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Today we're circling back to an interview David did with, uh, let me check my notes here, with an economist as a part of our New Normal Conversations. Yeah, that's right. I actually recorded this interview on December 21st of last year, 2022, and we recently realized it was stuck in the archives and was never shared with you, our listeners. And it's really good. It's too good not to share. And so note to self, don't schedule interviews three days before Christmas Eve. (laughs) So David, why don't you tell us about your guest? Sure, I will. So Laura Ulrich is a PhD economist, and she taught in the university setting for a dozen years, 13 years, something like that. And then she uh, became a regional economist with the Federal Reserve. So she is based out of the Charlotte office for the Fed, and she really focuses on on on-the-ground economics. Uh, represents North and South Carolina and really is heavily involved in research and conversations with business leaders and other community leaders. And she'll speak a little more about all of that. But most importantly, Laura is a friend of mine. 
and uh, we've been friends since we both moved to Rock Hill about the same time, 18 years ago, and we have just really gotten to spend life together as part of the same church community and have had children who are growing up together, and so I really value her not only as an economist with a faith background, but also as a friend. I think this may be the first time we've had a Fed on the pod, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, as Joe, Laura teaches this course with me at Duke Divinity School, and um, as we introduce her to the class each uh, year, I say, I, I think Laura's probably the first PhD economist to teach at Duke Divinity School as well. I don't know that to be true, but it would be my guess. I, I would imagine that's right. Well, let's see what we can learn about economics and implications for the church in this final episode of our New Normal series. Take it away, David. Well, Laura, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you on for this conversation about economics and the new normal. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, uh, we can kind of jump right into things. Uh, the audience has heard a little bit of your background and your bio. Um, and of course, you know, I've gotten to spend a lot of good time around you and your family uh, over the years. But I wonder if you would just maybe talk a little bit about how you got into this field of economics, what drew you into that career path and and then maybe what sort of work is giving you energy? Um, you know, where have you kind of found your space within that larger field? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so because I work at the Federal Reserve, I always get to start anything I do by reminding you that the views I'm going to express are mine today. So I'm going to take off my Fed hat and put on my Laura Economist hat here um, as I answer these things. So these are my views alone. Um but I originally, like when I decided to major in economics in college, it was really two things that drew me to economics. Number one was the fact that I had had a very good high school economics teacher who hmm. was very engaging. And just from the start, when we learned even the basics of economics, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the way my brain works. I just kind of naturally think this way. Um and then the other thing was, if I'm being honest, it was because I didn't know exactly what path I wanted to take. And as I was looking at things I could study, I knew I kind of wanted to be in the business school at the University of Georgia. And economics to me seemed like the most broad option um, or the broadest option at the time. Um, and as I got into taking the classes, my experience in high school really was a true indicator of, of how interested I was in it. I just thought it was... Um, Every class I took, I, I really enjoyed. So when I left undergrad, I left during a really hot job market. It's 1999 when I was interviewing and it was, you know, kind of the height of the dot-com bubble. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of good job opportunities. And so at the time, I was not thinking about being an economist at all. I thought I wanted to go kind of like Ivy League MBA or something like that. And, and so I took a job doing business consulting. And... I just realized very quickly that it wasn't for me, that kind of the corporate America track um, was not going to be the track I wanted to be on. And as I thought more about what I wanted to do with my life, I kept coming back to options related to being an economist or be, and specifically being an academic economist. And hmm. so that was why I really went to go get my PhD in economics was specifically to 
be an academic, which is interesting now because I'm on a bit of a different path. So I was an academic for, for 13 years. I was at Winthrop University in Rockville, South Carolina. Absolutely loved it. And then an opportunity opened up at the Fed in Charlotte. And as an economist working for the Federal Reserve um, was kind of a dream for me and for a lot of economists, I think. So decided to take that, that opportunity. And my job there, I do a combination of outreach um, to nonprofits, to, um, you know, talking to leaders and organizations, um, talking to government officials, things like that, and then also do some internal research. And the internal research that I do that gives me the most energy is around um, education, probably not randomly since I was an academic for 13 years, but right, around right. education and also around labor force participation and the barriers to work. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it seems like the way you have described to me your job with the Fed, it, it is more of that sort of relational mm-hmm. and on the ground type of economics. And even the the internal research part is kind of backing that up. You know, yes. how does this really play out in our local economies with real people kind of on the ground? Right. right? I mean, oftentimes we can see things going on. Like right now, we can see that in a lot of um, sectors, there are labor shortages. But why is that? Right. Like what's actually going on? Um, There's a lot of potential stories, but, you know, research can sometimes um, gives us the opportunity to, to tell a richer story. And so I love being able to dig into the data to to try to discover what is actually going on on the ground. You know, what data can uh, represent the patterns that we're seeing in real life? (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe just building off of that, you know, obviously the COVID disruption Mm -hmm. in, in terms of disrupting every aspect of our life, right? From from family life and home life to, to church life, um, to the wider economy. Um, you know, are we figuring out what the economy looks like in a post-COVID world? Do we do we have any sort of uh, sense of, of the ground underneath us right now? Are economists still sorting through the data and trying to figure out, you know, is, is this a new sort of economy or if we, have we blown up some of the old rules or are we kind of snapping back to the sorts of things that economists would have expected right. pre-COVID? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, first of all, the true kind of in-depth economic research on these topics is going to take years to to really flesh out, which yeah. is frustrating for everybody, including economists, but it's going to take a while, right? Because of data lags and just the length of time it's going to take to do the research. But um you know, it's interesting because the, what's going on right now is very dichotomous. In some ways, the economy has done quite well. I mean, GDP, we did have two negative quarters of GDP growth, but they were just slightly negative. And then we had a pretty strong third quarter. And there's some estimates out there that the fourth quarter is going to be relatively strong. And so in in a lot of rate ways, if you look at economic growth, it's been pretty resilient. Consumer spending has been very resilient. Um, and so that's why we haven't had, you know, that the consumer spending being so strong and the job market being so strong is a big reason why, you know, we're not in an official recession right now or weren't earlier this year when we did have negative GDP growth. Um, But there are some sectors that are really hurting. So right now, certainly the interest rate sensitive sectors, I mean, namely Mm -hmm. residential real estate has really seen a sharp decline. Um, So while some industries, some sectors are still seeing really strong demand. There's been significant pullback in other sectors. So um, it kind of depends on, on what industry you're working in. But I would say, so so some of it we don't quite know yet. Are we going to return to what we saw, you know, in 2019 or before? 
or is this new? I don't think we know quite yet. However, there are some shifts that have occurred that I think um, give us some idea of, of give, give us a lot of insight, I think, into, especially on the labor side, how people want to work, who they want, where they want to work, things like that. So if you look at um, sectors like leisure and hospitality, it has not fully recovered to pre-COVID employment. But other sectors like professional and business services has exploded and 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 really has had very strong um, employment growth since since before before COVID and during COVID through COVID. Um, and I think what we've seen is people have left jobs that are very difficult and stressful and tend not to pay a lot, and they yeah. have moved to jobs where they can make the same or maybe more money where life is not as stressful. And so right now, if you look at the sectors um, in employment subsectors that haven't recovered or that are continuing to lose jobs, things like public education, K through 12 education, um, nursing home employment, Mm -hmm. um, people working in, in fast food restaurants, um, people working as social workers for the government. These jobs are all really hard jobs, right? A lot of them are customer facing or they're in a difficult environment where um, people might face criticism a lot. And, and if they, if a lot of people I think are showing us, you know, they've moved into sectors where they have more flexibility, you know, they're working from home some or all of the time. And so I think we've seen that COVID for good or for ill. And I guess in the end, we'll, we'll see how this turns out, but it made people make it, it, people made some changes, right? And part of it was because they were able to pause for just a second. There, there are a lot of people, um, and and I know you and I have been through career, career changes too at different times where we were probably in a similar boat, right? You're just working, 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 not thinking a whole lot about what you're doing because you like your job and you're, you know, you're paid well, all of those things. And then all of a sudden something happens where you can take a step back and it's like, oh, there is another option, right? And so I think COVID that happened for millions of people at once. Right? Yeah. And you, you know, I think we heard a lot about sort of the great resignation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, Mark Tidsworth with Pinnacle has talked about is, is the great reevaluation mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and sort of thinking about in the larger world, how people have done that, taken a pause and looked around at their life, you know, every aspect of life from family life to their work, to church, and involvement in other uh, social connections and have really kind of reevaluated how they spend their time and energy. And I I think that is a changing landscape for Mm -hmm. the church and and for Mm -hmm. pastors. And, um, you know, I think we also saw sort of a, uh, a, a wave of pastors who left paid professional church ministry uh, during and after COVID. So, you know, I wonder, I think this sort of takes us down the road toward, you know, we had the opportunity last year to mm-hmm. to, to teach a course together at Duke Divinity School. And, you know, it might have been sort of an odd uh, thing to bring an economics professor into the Divinity School classroom. And, um, and yet, I think that some of the connections in that course and some of the conversations we've had, you know, I think there are some really interesting intersections between mm-hmm. what you do and study. And I think you're you're an economist who knows enough about church life and ministry life to be dangerous. And maybe I'm a pastor that knows enough about economics to be dangerous. Uh, 
But where do you sort of see important or interesting connections between economics or the larger economy and faith in the church? Yeah. So, you know, I'll start kind of even just at the heart or the basics of economics. You know, economics studies how people and firms and governments, organizations make decisions in the presence of scarcity. And mm-hmm. just kind of core economics would tell you that people make decisions in order to maximize their own utility and firms make decisions to maximize their own profit. And that's rational behavior. That's how we should expect people to behave. And for people, the way to maximize your utility is by consumption. So you Mm -hmm. consume and you get benefit out of that. And so people want to maximize their consumption. Most faith traditions are all the ones that I know of do kind of ask people to take a pause on that and say, is that what we want to do? Do we always want to be the rational consumer, right? Yeah. Do we want to just maximize our own consumption? Is there something more? Is there something else beyond ourselves that would ask us to think differently about that? And one of the things I, um, always try to explain to my students is that I think, I think when we think of rational, that sounds good and irrational sounds bad, right? That's, that's kind of how we would put one in the positive box, one in the negative box, but not always, right? It is irrational for a firm, for a business to provide health insurance for their employees for free. There's no rule that says they have to do that. There's no, that's not a requirement, right? That might be irrational, but we also might think of that as being a really amazing, generous thing to do, right? So there are times when irrationality can be a really good thing. And so I think faith um, in general kind of requires us to to think about that a bit, whether we think of it explicitly or not, that's really what what we're doing. Um, I also think that as organizations, there's a pretty significant um, overlap between behavioral economics, which which looks at how people make how, how people behave. Right. And that people don't, you know, in this process of of um, consuming, of being a rational consumer, consumer, they're making decisions on how you spend your time, your energy. Just like you said before, some people have made really significant changes with that. And so I think churches, churches were dealing with this before COVID, right? With a younger generation that didn't necessarily see their place in the church building like older generations had, right? Right. Um, And so thinking about how congregants make decisions as people that are faced with scarcity, scarcity in time, scarcity in money, um, you know, just scarcity of all these things is really important because, I mean, at the end of the day, the church has to figure out how to keep their doors open, right? I mean, the church has to operate like a business as well. So I think this is something that that churches all across the country, from what I've been reading, have been struggling with, right? Because typically church, a lot of churches are significant property holders. So just like businesses are trying to figure out how to get people back into offices in these big skyscrapers and big built in big cities. Churches are also trying to figure out how to get people in the building to use the spaces that they have and to participate in the programming that they've provided for many, many, many years. Right. And so I think economics can give us some insight into that decision-making process and, and can really help 
you know, an understanding of it. And, and there's there's quite a bit of literature out there on, on religion and economics, but, you know, understanding a bit about how people make decisions can really, really help churches. Yeah, I think that overlap and intersection between behavioral economics and just how how we all operate in relation to one another mm-hmm. and how what we think and believe and how we live that out in the the physical and the economic world is just really interesting. Um, the idea that we're all, for the most part, we we don't function as the rational human beings right. or organizations that you know uh, traditional economics would sort of put on paper. Um, it it's it's fascinating to me to think about how we might encourage churches and individual disciples to think about their calling or their mm-hmm. mission in the world mm-hmm. and how to bring systems and organizations and budgets in line with that mission or purpose so that we're really, you know, we're trying to sort of maximize efficiency, exactly. but, That's it, right. but it's efficiency toward a particular goal or toward a particular purpose in the world. Yeah. And, and I think behavioral economics gives a great lens for that in terms of thinking about how we model and see the world and how maybe we have certain biases that uh, prevent us from seeing a clear picture or acting as a rational actor in the world. Um, so I, I'm just fascinated by all of that. Yeah. And uh, Well, yeah. I think too, you know, one other thing that, that just strikes me a lot in the research that I do and just kind of in my lived experience is that really all organizations, um, and I would say that, and households, um, are dealing with a tremendous demographic shift in the United States right now. Um, you know, now we have millennials are around 26 to 41 years old, I think Gen Z as well into the labor force at this point. And these younger generations are demanding different things of their lifestyles. They're demanding different things of their employers. They're demanding different things of their churches. Um, and so all organizations are having to shift in a, a bit or a lot, depending on what they, they where they are to figure out how to serve these generations different than the baby boomers were served, right? Because it is different. And and I think the baby boomers being such a large dominant generation for so long is really making this shift pretty, pretty difficult for a lot of, a lot of organizations. But at the same time, like survey data shows that like Gen Z is very, you know, they really want to be philanthropic. They really want to give up their time and energy and resources. And so I think there's ways to harness the the younger generations and really make something fantastic out of it. But I, but I think it's a, it's difficult for everybody. Well, and I think maybe that going back to one of your original points about COVID sort of forcing a pause in our lives and a, a moment to reevaluate, I mean, the reality is that all of these trends demographically, uh, in our culture, in the business world, in in the church, all these trends were in motion Mm pre-COVID. And COVID maybe accelerated or raised awareness, uh, maybe just sort of put us on the spot and said, hey, let's take a minute to deal with this and, and really wrestle with the changing landscape that's right here around us, whether, whether we're speaking of, of, you know, employees who are not ever going to go back or want to go back to a hundred percent in person in a brick and mortar office somewhere, they're going to really be looking for hybrid or virtual options, remote work options. 
you know, in the same way with the church, you know, a, a younger generation, a different demographic is going to look for alternative ways to connect and interact mm-hmm. with with church and different ways to be resourced for discipleship and for mission in the world. And I think all of those trends were really happening pre-COVID, accelerated by COVID. And now we've got to kind of come to terms with that as pastors and leaders and, uh, you know, as churches. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you're exactly right, I think. And, And also just realizing that for people who have grown up with a smartphone in their hand, the idea of connecting virtually just seems like no big deal, right? So I hear business leaders sometimes say, well, you can't create culture online. There's a lot of young people that would disagree with that. There's a lot of young people that have met their spouse online or their best friends are online or whatever it is. They attend church online. They, you know, I, I, the other day I watched a, a live streamed wedding of one from one of my, cl- one of my <laughs> former students. And, and, and so it, it, it's a different, we're in a different time now. And so I think you're right. It got accelerated. And so what would have taken 10 years to happen happened in, you know, four weeks. And so now all of a sudden, how do organizations, including churches, catch up to expectations um, for for kind of the post-COVID world? It's tough, but I think it's doable with flexibility and and being, you know, creativity. Well, and I think that churches and maybe some businesses learned early on in COVID that we can adapt. Yep, that's right. You know, no matter how confined or defined by the way we had always done things, we did adapt early on. Uh, churches very quickly figured out ways to connect mm-hmm. beyond being in one building together. And, you know, we did an earlier episode in this season of the podcast that was really about technology and tried to expand the conversation for churches beyond just, you know, extending the worship hour Mm -hmm. via technology. And I'm probably not the one to be able to offer great guidance on this, but, um, you know, I think digital natives that do perceive technology as just an extension of real life, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for those of us who, had at least part of our life pre iPhone, um, (laughs) you know, we sort of adopt technology as we encounter it and try to use it the best we can, but it doesn't quite feel as natural. It doesn't feel like a natural extension of quote real life uh, where I think for Gen Z, this is just life and life is, is who you sit across the dinner table from or gather at a coffee shop with, but it's also just as much the people you interact with in some virtual way through a digital platform. Which seems completely, seems completely bizarre to some people. I mean, we're both in our mid forties. Right. And so I, every day I think like, Oh, I'm still young. I'm still, then I think, no, there's people nearly 25 years younger than me graduated from college. Right. Right. That are entering the workforce. And so for those younger people, um, yeah, it is, it is very different. And so I, I actually think there's a lot of positive things that can come from this. I feel very hopeful about, I, I think, you know, in asking your original question, are we going to go back to our, you know, the same where we were before, is this a new normal? I think we're going to go back in some ways, but I also think there is going to be a new normal. And I'm, I'm pretty sure some of it is much healthier, right? I'm watching some of my younger coworkers 
be able to more easily say, you know what, my child doesn't feel well today. I'm going to stay home and work. Yeah. Whereas, I, you know, some of us were before would have pumped them up with ibuprofen and sent them on their way. I mean, you know, there's just some things where you look back and think, gosh, it would have been nice to have a little more flexibility in my life as a young working parent, you know, and that's just yeah. one small example. But I think there are some things that are going to be much better coming out of this that are likely to stick for the for the long run. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, here's sort of a different question for you. And you could answer this from your perspective professionally, or mm-hmm. I think you could answer this from your your perspective as a, a committed churchgoer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there was one thing from your vantage point, your economic vantage point, uh, just your personal experience vantage point that you would want pastors to pay a little more attention to, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things in my own personal research that I try to be really mindful of, and and this gets to my interest in labor force participation, is that, you know, people are born with very different endowments, right? And everybody knows this. We all know, you know, of course, there's a saying like born with a silver spoon in their mouth, like there's sayings even around this, right? Yeah. But people are born with very different endowments of resources. and the research tells us that it is very, very difficult um, in many places, including um, in the metro area where we live in Charlotte, it is very difficult to move up in your station in life, right? So if you're born in that lowest economic quintile, it's very difficult to reach the top Mm -hmm. of the income quintile. And I think a lot of churches, because churches remain so siloed demographically, yeah. I don't think churches are really out there, and this is just my own personal opinion, I don't think churches are really out there trying to tackle that in the ways they could be. Um, mm. You know, I think there are congregations that are mostly wealthier white people. I think there's congregations that are mostly wealthier African-American people. There's congregations that are lower income, white people, you know, they're very siloed. And so I think from my vantage point, it would be to really know the community in which you're located and to understand those income demographics that there are still, you know, even right now, you know, in the beginning, I said consumer spending has remained really resilient. That's true. There's still a lot of excess savings. Um, in the economy. And you'll hear that statistic, like there's still over a trillion dollars of excess savings. That's true. But for the lowest quintile of Americans, they now have less money saved than they did in 2019. Yeah. So yeah. for these families, this is a really hard Christmas season, right? Yeah. Um, and I know there's so many churches that are that are so generous, but I don't necessarily think that as many churches as should be are very aware of the place in which they are located, I guess, is the yeah. best way to say it. Yeah, that's probably a good word for all of us to, you know, to to be committed to engaging with our local community, not just as sort of the, you know, speaking from my vantage point as the white savior mm-hmm. or the charitable giver. Exactly. Um, but to to really be willing to take the time and invest the time in listening to our neighbors, learning where our neighbors are and figuring out how we can come alongside them and really work for the transformation of our communities together. 
Yeah. Um, and a lot of those church leaders across the world, across the country, across the world, are people who could break down a lot of the barriers that have kept people from from obtaining the economic resources they need, right? Um, sure. Some of this, some of this is very, very difficult to change. Some of this is, you know, takes generational change, but some of it is institutional and systemic policies that could be changed tomorrow, right? It's just the way it is. And so um, in many communities, a lot of that power resides in churches. Well, and it seems like if there's any organization that ought to be about that work in the world and in our local communities, it ought to be the church. Right. And uh, and in terms of having the potential, in terms of building the social capital and uh, networking people across differences, mm -hmm. uh, the church really has potential in that area. And uh, so I think that's a great challenge uh, that, that you're bringing up for us. Um Maybe in light of that challenge, uh, we could sort of wrap up our conversation and shift to a, a, a word of hope or a mm -hmm. word of encouragement that you might have for pastors and churches out there, given this environment that we're all living in and trying to figure out. Yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned this before that I remain really positive. I mean, I'm seeing organizations and companies who are willing to be creative and flexible really flourish right now. I think that People want to be engaged. People miss engagement. I mean, we all, it, it, in some ways, we all became much more efficient during COVID, right? When we weren't having to go into offices and weren't having to be in person. But people miss that personal engagement as well. Um, now, they may not want it to look exactly the same as they did before, which that's where the flexibility and creativity comes in. But I think if you're willing to change things, if you're willing to upend things, then there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I'll give you an example from, from a business, but um, I was reading about, about a very traditional, actually a, a food service business where they started letting their people work three 12 hour shifts like nurses instead of hmm. eight, five, eight hour shifts. And they saw massive improvement in attitude, higher number of people applying, way better engagement. Employees were happier because their management was being kinder to them. They just saw this tremendous improvement and people were still working about the same hours. It just take them having to change their scheduling process, which is a huge pain, right? This company had used the same scheduling process for a long time, but it was worth a bit of pain for them to figure that out to, to make the system better. And I think the same thing is true for churches. You know, it may take doing things very different than was done in 2019 and certainly different than it was done in 1990, right? Things look different today. But I think in those changes, there exists a lot of opportunity to engage people and meet people where they are. And possibly in doing that, you know, in this company, allowing people to work three days a week, Maybe there are some people that come into the labor force who haven't been able to because of childcare difficulties or because of parent, you know, having to care for their parents or something else. You know, there maybe you're actually able to engage people that have never been engaged before. Um, but I do think that it's not going to happen by trying to do things the same old, same old. Yeah, thank you for that word of encouragement and for an example from the business world that I think can translate, you know, mm -hmm. I think, uh, uh, you know, the idea of being open, um, mm -hmm. from our faith perspective, uh, being responsive and attuned to the spirit and how the spirit might be teaching us and helping us to grow and expand even in the midst of disruption and uncertainty. I, I just really think that 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 is a good word for us. And I, I know that 
pastors and and people who are committed to the church can be really unnerved or worried or anxious about all of the change that's out there in our communities and context and and the economy and the world. Um, but I do think it's an opportunity to to step back and just to trust and to be open and to experiment, to try mm-hmm. some new things. So um, thank you for that word. And thank you for being a part of this, Laura. I'm, I'm really grateful, you know, for your experience for your your knowledge and bringing that to bear on on this topic but i'm i'm mostly grateful for your friendship so absolutely same that goes both ways <laughs> so thanks so much for being a part of the podcast and uh you know i, I hope maybe we can uh, come up with a good reason to have you back sometime absolutely anytime <laughs> thanks so much david well Rhonda, i guess that's a a wrap maybe a delayed wrap on this fifth season of pastor life podcast, uh, The New Normal, and uh, it's been good to have some of these conversations with our guests, and it's always good to have conversations with you. I'm looking forward to Season 6, Holy Experiments with David Brown. There's always something new to think about, huh? Glad to be sharing this journey with you and with our listeners. Um, Listeners, we will be recording hard over the next few weeks, and we'll have some new episodes out very soon. In the meantime, you can find Pastor Life Podcast at pinlead.com, P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com through Pinnacle Leadership Associates. And we're so glad that you joined us today. And I hope you're looking forward to season six, Holy Experiments. <laughs>